Father God, we ask for your spirit to be with us here now. Father, we ask that your spirit would shine light onto your word, that we might hear it, that we might receive it and learn it, that it might go deep into our inmost parts and change and transform us. In the power of Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, so this part of Luke 11 that we're looking at today is, uh, is probably not high on your list of favorite Bible passages. Um, these words are very difficult, and uh, Jesus comes across in this passage as pretty fiery. If I asked all of you here today to draw me a picture of Jesus, um, I would expect to see pictures of him as a baby in a manger, or healing people, or taking children in his arms, or carrying a baby lamb, or dying on the cross for our sins. These are the images that are strongly imprinted on our minds. I wouldn't expect to see many pictures of Jesus pronouncing woes on the Pharisees and lawyers. This part of his story really doesn't tend to grab us in the same way, and perhaps we prefer not to think about it. But this fiery side to Jesus is good. This is his mama bear side. It's what you get when you mess with the cubs. Or to use Jesus' own image, it's the side of the shepherd that you see when something threatens to harm the flock. So Jesus said that he was the good shepherd and that all God's people were his sheep. But that God also chooses from among the flock some people to be under shepherds and to join God in his work of leading and caring for the rest of the sheep. So there's a role of under-shepherds. And in the Old Testament, these under-shepherds included kings and prophets and priests. And in the New Testament, they included Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, and scribes. And in the modern church, they include pastors, presbyters, bishops, and priests. All these leaders are under-shepherds, and they serve under the one good shepherd. But sometimes the under-shepherds don't do what the good shepherd wants. Sometimes, instead of feeding the sheep, they feed off the sheep. Sometimes, instead of tending to the needs of the flock, they are uncaring and even abusive. And sadly, we know that this is not just a historical problem and that it's not a distant problem. It's very close to home. So since I moved to Tallahassee a year and a half ago, I've had people share with me on at least five separate occasions how they've experienced abuse from Christian leaders in the past. And my heart breaks for it. And I suspect that there are far more stories like this in the room than I've even heard. So what we do today is we ask, what does the good shepherd think about that? And it's in Luke 11 that we find out. So this is an important passage for all of us who are part of Jesus' flock. We need to know how Jesus feels when our leaders do us wrong and what he's going to do about it. And it's especially important for those of us who've been called to be under shepherds ourselves we need to know what the good shepherd expects of us. At the end of Luke chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus speaks 
to three distinct groups of leaders. So first, in 11 verses 37 through 44, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, and he confronts the hypocrisy of their rituals. Second, in verses 45 through 54, Jesus speaks to the lawyers, and he confronts the hypocrisy of their rules. And finally, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Jesus speaks to his own disciples, and he sternly charges them to watch out for hypocrisy. So we begin with what Jesus had to say to the Pharisees. And we've been studying Luke together long enough now to know who the Pharisees were. You remember that they were the social and moral elite of Jewish society. So in the eyes of ordinary people, they were intellectually impeccable and morally irreproachable. The Pharisees knew their Bibles. They kept the law. They considered themselves righteous before God. And they put themselves forward to be Israel's leaders. So in verse 37, a Pharisee invited Jesus to come for dinner, which was a gesture of honor toward Jesus. And Jesus came to dinner, but he didn't wash before the meal. And that insulted the Pharisees, because ritual washing was something the Pharisees did before every meal. And they had some good reasons from the Old Testament for thinking that that was important. It wasn't a bad ritual. Jesus could have washed. There was nothing wrong with washing. And he must have known that it's what his host wanted him to do. So it seems that Jesus deliberately neglected to wash in order to provoke the Pharisees. He annoyed them on purpose so that he could say what he wanted to say. In other words, Jesus dove headfirst into conflict with these powerful and respected leaders. So we might be afraid of conflict, but Jesus Jesus wasn't afraid of it at all. And here's what Jesus came to say. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. In other words, ritual washing was all well and good, but only insofar as it was a symbol of God's much greater and more important work of cleansing his people from sin on the inside. What good is a clean body if you have a filthy heart? So when I'm at home, I stand at the sink and I do my dishes, and I wash cups and bowls, and the mess is mostly on the inside. And the inside is the part that most needs to be cleaned. So if I stand there and I only wash the outside of all the cups and bowls, will Sarah be pleased with the job that I've done? No, No, she won't. I'll be doing them again in short order. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. That odd phrase, give as alms, just means pay sacrificial attention to this. So Jesus says, give sacrificial attention to the inside, and everything is clean for you. The inside is what's really important. Clean inside means clean outside. But clean outside doesn't mean clean inside. So Jesus, as he sat there at dinner, unwashed, was pure in his heart and was keeping God's law. The Pharisees sat at dinner washed with greed and wickedness in their hearts and they were breaking God's law. For them, the inside did not match the outside. 
And that is a picture of hypocrisy. So hypocrisy is the opposite of integrity. And integrity means that something is the same all the way through. So a piece of wood has integrity if it's solid all the way through. But if it's rotten on the inside or if it's riddled with termites, then it lacks integrity. It might look good on the outside, but you can break it with your hand. And when this situation is found in a person, it's called hypocrisy. The inside doesn't match the outside. What a person does doesn't match what they say. And Jesus confronts the hypocrisy of the Pharisees by speaking three woes to them in verses 42 through 44. And when we hear him use this language of woe, we remember that he's echoing the Old Testament prophets. You can find this language all throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, like we read in Ezekiel 13 today. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. So Jesus, as he echoes the Old Testament prophets, has three woes to speak over the Pharisees, and they get progressively more devastating. So first, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So some of you here might grow herbs in your gardens, maybe some basil and parsley. Can you imagine the scrupulosity that it would take to tithe your herbs, picking off every tenth leaf to give it to the poor, measuring it to see if it was the same size as the other nine leaves that you were keeping. And then imagine that while you're doing this, a poor man knocks on your door and asks you to help him get justice, and you shoo him away because you're too busy tithing your herbs. God's system of tithing in the law of Moses was part of his larger plan to care for the poor. If justice for the poor is being wildly and rampantly neglected, what good is it that you tithe your mint? The ritual has become a nonsense. Second, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees love to be better than other people. They define themselves as righteous as compared with all the riffraff over there who were sinners. They loved to be recognized as the superior people they were, to be given the best seats and to be saluted in public. But this is not the attitude that God looks for in his leaders. Quite the reverse. The leader's job is to stoop down and lift the people up because that's how Jesus led. Jesus led by leaving his throne in heaven to come all the way down, lower than angels, lower than kings, lower than peasants, and lower even than slaves when he died as a criminal, shamed and destitute, so that he could raise up wretched, worthless slaves, higher than kings, higher than angels, to be princes and princesses of heaven. That is the good shepherd. And that's the example his under-shepherds are called to follow. To stoop down and to lift the people up. But these Pharisees were trampling on the people so that they could be first. Finally, Jesus says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. This last woe is the real kicker. 
of all the three, it's the one that's the most devastating. Because the Pharisees treasured their ritual purity, their cleanness before God. But Jesus likens them to the foulest and most ritually unclean thing of all, a dead body. In God's law, touching a dead body made you unclean for a week. Jesus says of them, you think that you're ritually clean, but in the eyes of heaven, you're so foul that you make the peasants unclean when they come near you. These words have a real sting. And we see here just how passionately the good shepherd feels about his sheep, how much he cares for his sheep. But despite these harsh words, Jesus still loves these Pharisees. He loves these leaders because he's borrowing his language of woe from the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the goal of those prophets was always to provoke repentance. They spoke of doom and of the Lord's judgment, but every time the people repented, God was merciful. He forgave the sin and he held back the disaster that he had promised. So Jesus spoke these fierce words to try and provoke repentance from the Pharisees. And if they had repented, he would have been quick to forgive them. Even after all the harm they'd done, he would have died for their sins too. Now second, we turn to the lawyers. In verse 45, one of the lawyers put himself in the line of fire. And you've got to admire this guy. The Pharisees just got soundly thrashed and he sticks his neck out to complain. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. I'm sure he said it just like that. <laughs> Jesus responds by saying, in effect, I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> and uh, he speaks three woes over the lawyers too. And now you remember that a lawyer in the New Testament isn't like a modern attorney. If you're an attorney here, you can breathe a sigh of relief. It's more like a modern theologian. So these guys were experts in the law of Moses. They prided themselves on their understanding of God's word, their knowledge, and their role in teaching people the way of life. But Jesus confronts them too with three woes that reveal their hypocrisy. So first, in verse 46, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Here Jesus is referring to their practice of elaborating on the law, of adding lots of things to it. So for example, when it came to the simple law about keeping the Sabbath day holy, that's in the Old Testament, the lawyers had added dozens and dozens of rules about what counted as work, including that you mustn't light a fire on the Sabbath, and that there were only a certain number of steps you could take, because if you walk too far, that would be work. So what the lawyers did in this and many, many other ways is to add burdens to the people on top of what Moses had actually said. But at the same time they were doing that, they found ways around their own laws. So they worked in some nifty escape clauses for people that knew where to find them. Like, you can take the gift that belongs to your parents and offer it to God instead. And that keeps your responsibility to your parents, somehow. And... If you swear by the altar instead of the gift that's on the altar, then you don't actually have to keep your word. So what they ended up doing is telling the people to do one thing, but they themselves were doing something else. They had a double standard. And Jesus calls this out as another form of hypocrisy. 
The attitude of these lawyers is the opposite of God's heart for his people. Because instead of dumping burdens on us, God asks us to give him our burdens. And he asks nothing from us without also giving us the help that we need to do it. Second, in verse 47, Jesus says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Now, Jesus is being a little bit clever here. Apparently, the lawyers did actually build tombs for the dead prophets as a way to honor them. They built tombs as a way to show their deep respect for the word of God. But Jesus says here that those prophets were only dead because the ancestors of the lawyers killed them. And now these lawyers had inherited the same attitude as their fathers when it came to a living prophet. So when they built tombs for the prophets, what they were really proving is how glad they were that the prophets were dead. In their eyes, the only good prophet was a dead prophet. So there was Jesus, a living prophet, right in front of them, right before their eyes. And what they're doing is plotting how to kill him. These lawyers were very privileged because they lived in the generation that all the prophets had been looking forward to. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel had strained their eyes to see this day. The Messiah was here. All the prophecies of God were being fulfilled before their very eyes. But all they wanted to do was to see Jesus dead. And so the rejection of Jesus was also a rejection of everyone that had come before. A rejection of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and David and Moses and Abraham. They were rejecting and murdering every part of the law that they claimed to love. That's why Jesus said of them, the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world will be charged against this generation. And that sounds bad enough, but once again, it's the third woe that's the most devastating. Because the lawyers thought that by understanding and teaching God's law, they were guardians of the key of knowledge and were able to lead God's people in the way of life. That's what they lived to do. But the truth, said Jesus, was quite the opposite. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So by their excessive regulations and by their hypocrisy, the lawyers had kept God's people away from God, the very opposite of what they were trying to do. It's a crushing and terrible indictment. It's the worst thing that a leader of God's people could possibly hear, that I did nothing but harm. And once again, we remember Jesus' role as a prophet here. He's shouting over their deafness in order to be heard. He's desperately trying to burst the bubble of their self-righteousness so that they might mourn and repent and be saved. His goal is not ultimately to condemn them. He loves these leaders too. He was ready to die for them and take their punishment. Jesus was ready to take all of the blood guilt of all those prophets on himself for their sake. He loves those leaders, but he's also angry and indignant on behalf of his sheep. 
And so finally, Jesus turns to his own disciples and his warning to them is, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we've seen that both the Pharisees and the lawyers were stuck in different forms of hypocrisy. The Pharisees stuck closely to the rituals of their faith, but they'd lost touch with the reality behind those rituals. So the outside was clean, but the inside was filthy. So they were not the people they claimed to be. They were hypocrites. The lawyers stuck closely to the rules of their faith, but they'd lost touch with the purpose of those rules, which was to bring people into living relationship with God. So instead of bringing people to life, they were putting them to death. No one could live the way they told people to live, not even the lawyers themselves. So they did not practice what they taught, and they also were hypocrites. But Jesus warned his own disciples to avoid hypocrisy. And then he made a promise to strike fear into the heart of hypocrites. Jesus said, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And that is a terrifying thought. God sees what's really going on, and he's going to make the truth known publicly in the end. The real person underneath is going to be exposed. No matter how many people you fooled, God is not fooled. He's going to make sure that you're seen for who you really are, and that's terrifying. But if you've ever been the victim of an injustice, that's also a word of life. Because so much happens in this world that's immune from human justice. I have a friend who lost custody of her daughter because her ex-husband worked in the courthouse and was friends with the judge. I've got another friend who was conned out of thousands of dollars but can't afford to take his case to trial. Human justice fails most of the time. In most cases, the wrongdoers get away with it. And sadly, the same is too often true in the church as well when the under-shepherds wrong the sheep. Instead of confession and repentance, there's a cover-up. Instead of proper discipline, the church is too soft on its leaders, to its shame. So when you're a victim and you can't get justice, it matters that there's a judge in heaven who saw everything and who will one day bring it to light. Nothing is immune from the justice of God. He will fight your case and he will make it right. And knowing that God will make it right also allows us to live in peace after we've been wronged. We can be at peace because we can leave the justice to God. And it allows us to pray for those enemies. We know that God's justice on them will be severe. And when we think of that, we can pray for mercy. And for ourselves, it's a powerful antidote to hypocrisy. So what I want to do today as we go home from here is to really take on board this warning from Jesus to beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus calls it leaven. Leaven is yeast, and when you add it to a batch of dough, it spreads all through the dough, and you can't get it out again. And Jesus said his hypocrisy is like leaven. It spreads and replicates itself. One hypocrite raises up other hypocrites. Now, you'll often hear the opponents of Christianity claim that the church is full of hypocrites. I expect you've heard those exact words. 
And that's one of the most painful accusations that could be made about the church, isn't it? That's sticking the knife deep into the heart. Because hypocrisy was Jesus' most vehement criticism of the Pharisees. And when we, people, when we hear people say that, that the church is full of hypocrites, we can defend the church a bit. Christians hardly have the corner on hypocrisy. <laughs> the world is full of hypocrites. And people who see the church as hypocritical usually misunderstand the heart of Christianity and think it's for people who believe they're perfect rather than people who know they're forgiven. But on the other hand, we must confess that there is still far too much hypocrisy in the church. And that it's both ungodly and unnecessary. It's unnecessary because we don't need to pretend to be anything we're not. We don't need to pretend to be perfect because the Bible says we're not. We don't need to hide our sin because we know about forgiveness. And we don't need to create a fake persona that's more lovable because we know that the real person is already loved as much as is imaginable by the God of the universe. So we can get rid of hypocrisy and live as children of the light. Let's avoid both the kinds of hypocrisy Jesus identified in Luke 11. Both the kind that makes us hide our sin instead of confessing it, and the kind that makes us practice religious rituals that have no substance for us just to look good. Remember what Sarah taught us last week, that God exposes what we try to cover, but he covers what we choose to expose. Second, if you've been a victim of hypocrisy in the church, then know that the good shepherd is on your side. He saw what happened, no matter how hard other people tried to cover it up, and he's mad about it. It's not the way you should have been treated in his flock. Unless those leaders who mistreated you repent and bring their actions into the light, Jesus himself will expose those actions on the last day. They will have to answer to him. So you can leave the justice of your cause to Jesus. It's safe in his hands. And you can trust him. It's understandable that it's hard to trust Jesus or his church, again, after an experience like that. But I ask you to try. Because the good shepherd is trustworthy. And he will hold all of his under-shepherds to account. And so finally, I ask you all to pray for your leaders. James wrote in the passage we read today that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And when we read Luke 11, we can see exactly what James means. The task of serving as an under-shepherd of the good shepherd is a sober one. It's beyond our human strength, and our sins and mistakes can, make, can have major consequences. So this job sometimes feels like being a bull who's called to work in a china shop. <laughs> Please pray for me and Taylor and your other leaders as we live into this calling that we would have lives of integrity, free from hypocrisy. Pray that we'd always be conscious of our sin and weakness, that we'd be going daily to the Lord for forgiveness and strength. And pray that by the grace of the Good Shepherd, we would only do good to his flock and never harm. Amen.